there's something beautiful about the emotion we call love. We're on a mission to find out more about how it affects every being. It all starts with perception. What if our perception of the world and its many inhabitants expanded? Every being has a different vantage point. When we truly get to know a soul, we find knowledge. Asking questions with an open mind is how we learn how to relate to one another. When we identify with someone beyond the surface level, we fear less and love more. We're all teachers. Every person on this planet has something impactful to share. This podcast is about expanding our vision and illuminating the threads that bind us together as a community. Simply put, this podcast is about lessons in love that we learn along the way in our journeys to find our true selves. Welcome to Unified Threads. Sometimes I feel into insanity. Into insanity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes I feel so handsome. Evo be Marley. See something good to me. Yeah, yeah. This world go crazy. It's an emergency. Oh, yo, yo, yo. Welcome to episode 07 Retrospect. In 2015, according to the International Office of Migration, more than 3,770 migrants were reported to have died trained across the Mediterranean. Most died on the crossing from North Africa to Italy, and they say that more than 800 died in the Aegean crossing from Turkey to Greece. No one knows for sure how many people have died because nobody knows how many boats are leaving. It's a conundrum. The statistics are scattered. UNHCR, the UN's official refugee agency, says that in 2015, they saw 856,000 plus people arrive by sea to Europe. Now, I question that number. How can they actually be keeping track of all these people? I spent quite a bit of time in Greece, and it seems like the registration systems were a bit of a mess. It was very convoluted. From one day to the next, the process would change. The registrations appear to have been done by hand. And from what I've heard from my other refugee friends, apparently when you reach a new country, you go through a new registration system. I don't understand if UNHCR is perhaps collecting all of the data from all of the different countries and that's how they're coming up with their number, or if they're only taking the data from the initial entry points to the European Union. Hopefully later on in this series, we'll be able to talk to a UNHCR rep. But in the meantime, let's just say about 900,000 people or so entered in 2015. This is at the end of March 2016. 150,000 have arrived by sea. Today we're going to talk about the Aegean Sea route. And that's the route from the Turkish shores to the Greek islands. I visited Turkey in mid-January 2016. After flying Thea's the cat to Berlin and helping Mohammed find his family, I really wanted to see for myself what was happening on the other side. 
After spending two and a half months receiving people on the Greek island of Lesbos, I needed to know what were these people going through before they came over. I knew that I couldn't go down into a smuggler's camp, but what I could do is go to Istanbul, which is the initial point where people pay for this journey and find their smuggler, and then go to Izmir by bus to see what was happening in Izmir, and hopefully meet up with some friends there to do some on-the-ground learning. And that's exactly what I did, which is how I met up with Alexandra again, who I'd met on the island of Lesvos while she was there working on a lighting project before getting hooked up with the CK team at a very dangerous landing spot CK Team has started a new initiative out of Izmir to help people receive safe life jackets. This is one of the number one reasons that refugees and migrants die when they try to make this crossing over the Aegean. As we mentioned in the last episode, the life vests that many people buy are sports jackets, which really mean that they're not intended to hold somebody up above water for very long. Sometimes the material is even absorbent and can drag someone down faster. CK team is doing amazing work getting safe life jackets into the hands of refugees and migrants. They're doing this by working directly with life jacket distributors in Izmir and going in person to make sure that these are authentic European Union certified life jackets. Now they do not recommend the crossing. It is not safe, but they know that thousands of people are still going to do it. And when I was in Lesbos from end of October 2015 until early January 2016, there was still movement happening. Now, at the time, it didn't see like it was very free-flowing, but now things have locked down to the extreme. And I'm sad to say, unfortunately, it's just going to keep getting worse. More than a million people have filed for asylum in Germany. There's no infrastructure, or very little at least. Now they're trying to keep people from being able to claim their legal rights of asylum. A statistic you might find interesting is that 49% of people coming in are Syrian, but 26% are from Afghanistan, 16% are from Iraq, 3% are from Pakistan, 3% are from Iran, and 3% are from other countries such as Morocco, Egypt, and maybe even Libya. I also heard of some people coming from Nepal. Now, the reason that I bring up demographics is because most people think refugee and they think Syrians, and they do make up the largest number of the population. I personally, during the two and a half months I spent in Greece and Germany, and then even traveling to Turkey, interacted mostly with Afghans and then Iraqis. Afghans have actually had their asylum status rights taken completely away from them. It's strange because 2015 has been the bloodiest year to date since 2001. Why would they no longer be able to claim asylum? Back to Alexandra. She traveled with Matt from the CK team to Izmir to do some networking in the community and meet the authentic distributors. We had a chance to meet up while we were both in the area, and she showed me the district where many of the refugees plan their trip down to the seashore before they take the extremely dangerous journey either by rubber dinghy boat or horribly decrepit, basically, tourist boats that were never meant to be on the high seas in the first place. Izmir is where they go before they get into a cab, and then from the cab, go down to the seashore where they wait in a camp. It could be hours, days, and for some, weeks, waiting until there's an opening in the sea for them to cross. Alexandra's going to tell us about the CK team's amazing work, 
And she's also going to fill us in on what she knows or knew at the time about this crisis. Now, it's important to remember this is an ever-evolving situation. What you're listening to today may not be accurate tomorrow. And what we knew back in January has completely changed as of today, which is March 27th, 2016. What we do know is this is one of the most monumental times in history. It's important that we stay engaged and that we understand the truth behind what's going on. Before we dive into Alexander's thoughts, I want to share one more nugget to chew on. When I was in Istanbul, staying with a friend's family member, I was watching the news and saw a report my friend translated for me stating that Turkey was doing everything that they could to bring refugees back to the shore. They understood that the crossing was not safe and that people needed medical care. Since Turkey was paid the $3 billion by the European Union at the end of November 2015, they had brought back a thousand refugees to the shores of Turkey. I just want to put that into perspective for you. When I saw this interview, it was mid-January. They had a month and a half to bring back refugees before this media report went out. While I was on the island, on average, there'd be anywhere from 2,500 to 3,000 people arriving per day. The busiest day I was there was November 4th, and there was more than 7,000 people that landed on the island. Every rubber boat that lands has more than 50 people in it. Every tourist boat that lands, the larger ones at least, have at least 200. So I'm going to let you do the math. If Turkey's doing everything that they can to bring refugees back to the shore, or if they were mid-January, how does that possibly add up? Now, let's hear from Alexandra. And thank you for listening and being mindful and opening your heart to the idea that we all deserve a chance. It's an emergency. We're in the hotel and we're um, in the lobby. It's a hotel that's down the street corner, so off the beaten path, but you know, it's still really close to the mosque. It's still really close to where they all line up and meet meet the smugglers. Well, not even meet. I think they get a phone call and they're told to get a new taxi. Um, actually, I don't know how it works because I also saw some guy at the restaurant we're sitting at give another guy $200 cash. U.S. dollars? U.S. dollars after getting into the taxi cab. Full of a Syrian family. So it's very confusing. So it's like he's the one that's I don't know. Yeah, right? Maybe he was being paid for um, the, the transportation or paid, you know, this is what he's got to pay the cab driver and then this is what... You know, he's got to keep this family of six for two days. I don't know. Something yeah. like that. I mean, they have to have people that kind of go, go along. along. Yeah. yeah. I was in the bus station when I got here yesterday morning. We saw three guys with backpacks. And one guy sitting with them seemed to, you know, he was on the phone and didn't have a backpack with them. He seemed to be kind of like the man that was maybe mm. helping them navigate the situation. Of course, I don't know that for sure. It felt like it, though. So, during the day yesterday, we were, before we went to the mosque and met the imam, we were trying to hand out the papers discreetly to the families that we saw on the street. We managed to, to get in touch with a young man, and we're sitting there and we're talking to him and handing him the piece of paper, and he is looking around everywhere. 
for the fear of a smuggler or a cop. I'm not sure what he was afraid of, but there was definitely fear and worry, and he shouldn't be talking to these Westerners. And that's what happened last night when we went into the hotel lobby. We're spending about 10 minutes speaking with his family about their journey and what to expect and who to reach and, and all the things that we're not supposed to be talking to these people about because that's human trafficking, right? The father, who spoke English, we were speaking with him. Some three, three men go up to him and they say, you need to go outside because we have Western faces. He can't speak to us inside the hotel lobby about what's going on. And, you know, I go outside with him, and he's telling me, he's like, can you, can you check my life jackets? Can you check my life jackets? And I was like, yeah, but I'm not allowed in your hotel. And he was like, you're right. Maybe I'll bring the life jacket out to you. But in the end, um, we just ran out of time. He was telling me, and it, it, I just remember him saying, he goes, you know, you told me that the life jackets are supposed to be one solid brick, and so I bought two, and I spent 100 lira on this life jacket for, for my son. And when I ripped it open, it was layers of foam, and it was fake. It was cardboard. Why? Why would they sell that to me? I don't understand it either. Like, what kind of human being are you knowing that you're selling this, this father for his child a life jacket that's not real? And do, and do, do the salespeople know that they're not real? I mean, this, this the whole cycle is... How deep does it go? Where are they coming from? First of all, where are they being made? In a factory. Isn't that what just happened? They found those kids, Syrian kids, making life jackets in a factory, fake life jackets. Yeah, that can't be the only one, though. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're talking about more than a million people in a year. It's almost like, are they doing it on purpose because there's something even deeper here? Where are the people going to go when they get to Europe? The one Afghan man, my friend Kim interviewed him, um, on, and she videoed it, and it's on Facebook, I'll send you the link, um, who, his, his boat pilot jumped out of the boat, and then he started steering the boat and, and driving it, and then the uh, Turkish Coast Guard came over and started to try and drown the boat literally was hitting him in the back with an oar and then making huge waves splash the boat and and the reason they left them alone is because they saw another boat further out that they could go terrorize it's all politics it's all money it's all power and it's all oil if the turkish government is supposed to keep them they're paid to keep them Mm -hmm. is this their way of attempting i think to deter people it's a great way of Hopefully their boat will capsize, and then that's that. They're not our problem to deal with, and, you know, Europe doesn't want them to be their problem. Mm-hmm. So they're the, the sea's problem. There's so many layers to this crisis. And they're all connected, but, like, you can't figure out what ties it all back. Where does it even... Where's the root of the issue? Most Which is the war, war right? you know, oil, power, mm-hmm. money. We're all to blame. Everyone is to blame. Like, you can't sit here and be like, oh, I blame ISIS, I blame Lot. No, these things exist because because we exist and we fuel that kind of greed and and energy. Literally, Ah. everything that we wear has petrol in it. Cars have have it, obviously. But even if we stop using cars, 
We're still relying on petrol. The CK team is doing it though as a, a pioneering initiative. That's the little girl from last night. That's Mom. one of the families, yeah. So they are trying to inform without really actually informing because we're not suggesting that you take the journey across. If you choose to do it at your own will, here's some guidances. You know, don't tie yourself to the boat. Wear a proper life jacket. Here's where you can get a life jacket for 40 lira. Mm -hmm. That's not fake. Send your GPS location. Do you think that there's a way to try to figure out if they are staying, it ultimately becomes, you know, encouraging people to, to stay in Turkey, who to connect on, on this side that can be an advocate for them to figure out how they're being employed with proper wages. And, you know, I don't know how any of that stuff works here. I think that's the problem. I mean, I know I, I was following someone who was interviewing a bunch of people who were stuck in in Turkey, you know, we're doctors and they're not allowed to work here. It's stagnant. I think this is the problem. This is why people are, they, they, and yeah, I met this guy. He owns a marine shop. The entire time we spoke about politics and, and the question, why would they want to leave Turkey if we're giving them so much? Like they have a place to live. They have work that they can do. Why would they want to leave? And I'm like, because you don't want them here time, you know, why would they want to come to America? Because right now, in our political stance, we don't want them there. Why, where are they going to go? History is repeating itself. There's more refugees on the move in Europe than there have been since the Second World War. I'm going to keep bringing up that statistic because I think it's important that the listeners of this podcast remember the magnitude of this crisis while at the same time realizing that there's a very human side to this and that there are people that care, that we do need each other. I was in Istanbul and Izmir in January. I met a Hoso carpet distributor at the Grand Bazaar the day after the Istanbul terrorist attack which killed 10 German tourists. I met the gentleman that you're going to hear next while wandering through the market. He stopped me and asked, wasn't I afraid to be there? I told him no, I wasn't afraid. He said, well didn't you hear that there was a terrorist attack just yesterday? I said, yes, I had heard about the attack. For me personally, I feel like they weren't going to hit the same area twice. I'd been very fortunate that I was not at my planned destination the day before. I'd been staying on an island, and it was way too windy. I couldn't come into the city. The day after, I felt like most people probably wouldn't be out and about in the very busy areas, and it would be a good day to go ahead and see the parts of Istanbul that the city is known for. He appreciated this response and invited me over for tea. Side note, all of the people that I met in Turkey were extremely hospitable. There's a lot of controversy about the government. 
and their media suppression is pretty crazy. Despite legal protection, media freedom in Turkey has steadily deteriorated over the last five years. Since 2013, Freedom House has ranked Turkey as not free. Reporters Without Borders ranks Turkey as the 149th place out of over 180 countries, right between Mexico and the DR Congo. In the third quarter of 2015, Bayonet recorded a strengthening of attacks on the opposition media, with the censorship of 101 websites, 40 Twitter accounts, 178 news outlets, and attacks against 21 journalists. But the point being, the gentleman that was willing to go on record with his cousin for this interview, bravo. Now, real quick, before we jump into his thoughts, more on the topic of media suppression, I want to bring up something. The month of March has been horrific. There was Brussels, Belgium, and then an attack in Ankara, along with Lahore, Pakistan. I want to highlight Ankara, Turkey. There was a suicide bomb in March that killed 37 people. Less than a month prior to that, another bomb killed 30 people. And only four months before this attack, the most devastating terrorist attack in Turkish history ripped through Ankara, taking 109 souls. These people were marching for peace that were killed. There's been very little global sympathy for Ankara. Ankara is a huge city. It has 4.5 million residents. It's the capital of Turkey. It's a tourist country. It's all-inclusive. You go there and the food is amazing coffee, the tea. They love to entertain. For them, many of these refugees are literally coming from their backyard. I, for one, never got involved with helping immigrants in my own country. We have many people coming over from our neighbor, Mexico, and I've never taken the time to talk to them about their story. What did they they go through? What brought them to America? Could I do something to help them? Before I found myself involved in refugee work in Greece, it never crossed my mind, and I'm going to be real honest about that. So I'd like to let you hear from our friend. I'm extremely grateful for this man sharing his perspective with me. And now, here it is for you all. You can ask a question and we can answer. Okay. Let it be very quality one. Well, you had mentioned the attack yesterday and how you're hoping that doesn't affect you. Because there was a big explosion. How can we not? Oh, yeah, of course. It's not nice. They gave a big damage. You know, when they're damaging the market, they damage us too. Mm -hmm. Because market cannot buy. You're when saying the no tourism? Business, yeah. yeah. When they don't buy, the local people want to buy what they should buy. Mm -hmm. Because they cannot sell what they should buy. Yeah, because this is, your wholesaler is selling to the bazaar market. Yes. Okay. It's not like main road that people walk on. <laughs> this is it's a private shop. By invitation yeah. only? Only invitation. How do your customers find out about you? Easy. We know them, they know us. We okay. don't need to... It's all face-to-face. -face. Yes. So, do you think that this attack is going to cause a lot more fear for people to go to places like the bazaar market? One thing is this. The second thing is that we will be damaged to tourism. Because tourists will now think, oh, oh, I can die in there. Why should I go? Would you go to places where there is explosion and people have been attacked or people have been killed 
like you visitors, there are 10 people speaking, not one or two or three. All farmers from Germany, doesn't matter from where, but visitors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So as a visitor, you are, you put yourself, you never think before you go anything, you do. So you didn't give it big damage. Turkey, for my group of people, seems to have a dangerous reputation already, though, before this. I had yeah, no, many people tell me not to come to Turkey. They do. They do. You know what? Why is that? The fear is this. The image of, not for only Turkey, for countries like Turkey, always has got these bad reputations because of not only religion background, is because of Asian side is very close to here. So what's happening in Asia, all kind of tragedy or problem. ISIS is one of the main ones. Mm-hmm. The other terror groups are haggling away over there. They make any kind of stuff. Many, many stuff goes on. I would say the heart of the bad is there. So Turkey is close to mm-hmm. this kind of traffic of geography. So that makes fear, bad reputation, number one. Mm-hmm. It's behind the door. But in front of the door, people always impressed and, and, and very uh, touched with the, with the great hospitality of Turks or Asian blood is always like Mediterranean mentality is always impressive to come to have a sharing orientation of different cultures. That's why travel in abroad exists. We go to see and oriented to different cultures. That's why travel is based on this mentality. But what is wrong with the people is, not only Turkey I'm talking, the world is today Capitalism leading in the wrong worship. We don't share anymore. Capitalism, it was self-making, making and making, becoming kind of materialism in the end of the world. What happened is that this share today under the control of the governments everywhere around the world, and they control the rules, and the rules control the share, and share become under the attack of this press. It's not... I mean, your question was uh, about tourism, so that uh, visiting in here, it's great. People will never have a problem, but the problem is when this kind of unfortunate things happens, it happens. Mm-hmm. It can happen anywhere, actually. Yeah, yeah it happened in France. It did. Yeah, it so. did. So nowhere is safe, but safety is this. Do the people know, the one who attacks or the one under the attack, do they know killing is not the solution? Do they know the appreciation of peace? Do they know the sharing and welcoming, the share of, of hospitality and great loving one another rather than just to be disappeared, be being killed or killing one another or helping you or whatever? Mm-hmm. This negative devil is happy mm-hmm. with the ones who kills. Mm-hmm. But what about the angel? That's a big question. We should not forget about the angel side. Well, you brought up geographically where Turkey is and how it's a door in a lot of ways to these yeah. other countries and they, yes. Syria, you know, Syria just yeah, yeah, exactly. that's the tragedy of the whole human being itself. And I would like to say something for Syria it's also tragedy in abroad. Turkey was making a good great sense about refugees or the people who come from Syria, they were under the welcoming of hospitality and stuff and refugees camping and stuff. And we suffered a lot. But do the world knows this suffer, what does it mean? I don't think so. I agree. Because now Syrians under the not only homeless having no home, not only under the attack of this stupid whatever the people they call themselves as the presidents of wherever, mm-hmm. wherever. Because no 
power has got the right to let his ruled ones to be under the unknown world, killed or somewhere. Mm-hmm. Especially some refugees are under the water, their babies come to the seaside. Yeah. If that was his baby, what you would think? Mm-hmm. So what kind of presidency of Iraq or Syria or wherever it is, mm-hmm. wherever, mm-hmm. can have to say I'm powerful or I'll do the right thing? No, big no. Mm-hmm. The winter is very bad as well. So mm-hmm. also not only under the press, also people are having hard time mm-hmm. with the weather. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You mentioned that many are coming in and there's a hardship there. I would imagine, from what I've read, you've got millions more people here than mm-hmm. you, what you had prior to this outbreak yeah, of I mean, from violence. Syria. From Syria, from Afghanistan, from Iraq, lots of different countries. The question is simply, where are they staying? Are you able to help take care of them? How do they help you? How do they help you? How do they help you? What we see, uh, I'm trying to translate, what we see from the Turkish Republic of Governments and everything, that they do good as much as what they do good for their people, even better to them, you know, take care of it. The people from Syria who have come here, they are not hungry in here. At least they are fed by government. This is not the only question of the Turkey, it is the question of the world. Almost every day, almost 20 people, even 100 people in our estimation, they die on the way to suffer to go to on the boat to European or, yeah, European countries or so. This is dramatic and they die on the water in Sometimes it is objected to the media or sometimes it doesn't. What I am wondering is why do they want to leave Turkey? Do you have any insight? First, they believe better condition than the Turkish land, better better future they wish to, better future they are looking for. And they want to stay away far from the geography of Because Turkey is still close to this kind of fire. That's also a game of politics. That's also how I believe too. The the star, the star is America, is writing about this movie. And the players, they are on the way, and what happens is to people. Now, you say, America is not a star. I don't know what he means. That, oh, I see. I don't know what he means. I don't Amerika ne oyunu diyorsunuz? Abi Amerika nedir? Grandfather, baba. Okay. O ne dersi olur? Senaryoyu yazmış, oyun diye oynayacağız. 
Bütün dünyaya diyor ki böyle oynayacağız. Ha, ama burası bu siyaset He thinks that the, Efendim? the Godfather is America. Eyim başam geldi mi? The movie that's what happens is to the innocent people. So I got my impression was I would not agree with this. I'm also like him from here. I would not agree with this because I don't think America wishes to have a civilian people to be under this difficulties and all kind of bad and wrong and suffer and with their life, of course. I don't think so. I don't want to believe even any government wishes to see such civilians. It doesn't make any sense to me. It doesn't make any sense to me. Because which country would wish to have another country civilian to have under this and then they come to the door and they, oh, we don't want, oh, we don't want. No government wishes to see this. The reality is different. Reality is what is happening today. Yes, there are families, as he mentioned, also 50 or 20 between. Amount is not important, but uh, there was a media in the world as well. The babies are suffering so much, and they are under the, these difficulties. They pay with their life. My personal view: babies are angels. Angels are deserving better than we deserve to be alive and talk about them. They are angels, and angels doesn't deserve to die. We do deserve to die better than angels are. Angels, they need to be alive. Babies are babies. And I don't want to cry now, but babies are babies. Babies, they shouldn't die. They shouldn't pay for what the elders are doing. The elders are doing whatever. That shouldn't be the price that the kids are paying for that. I can't speak for every single American, but I do think that the majority, at least the people that I interact with, they don't want this to happen to people. We don't I know don't about our that government, yeah. but we My don't do I, I believe that. Yeah. I, I, on the contrary, believe that they wish to see the peace everywhere, especially America. That's how I believe. Because in the, their conversation, in their talk, I can see, I don't think in Obama's or other presidency, or they talk, oh, we should make a war everywhere, or we should let them to a war. No, I think they are trying to make the peace everywhere. But who listens grandfather, as my friend says, grandfather, Grandfather, yes, he is powerful, true. Yeah. My grandfather, America, maybe not see what's happening in the real side of the mirror. It might be true. They might not see. But what is more than truth is, I don't think only grandfather doesn't see. The kids are naughty in this part of the world. They don't listen to their grandfathers. That's the reality. And I hope these kids, they should open their mind Muslim to Muslim to be brother, but not only with Muslim to be Muslim to be brother. Christians, Jewish, atheism, Buddhism, capitalism, whatever who is. We are all brothers under the one tree. The base is Allah, God is Almighty, and the vitamins can be whatever presidency or powerful prophethood you call it, or whatever that makes the line, that makes you to believe in whatever branch that you are in, any color, but one base. That we are all brothers and sisters, human beings. Nothing is nicer than to be nice. Nothing. What do you want to t say to people that are thinking about coming to Turkey as a tourist? What is the community like? I would love you, Americans, first hello to my brothers and sisters who I haven't met or who I have met. To all, they are always welcome to our country and so sad to hear or to know sometimes some unexpected things happens as such a tragedy was before America paid much more than anyone else did 11 of September. So people might forget, but I don't, as even Turkish in here, I don't forget. 
So I wish them condolence, but one thing that I should tell to my brothers and sisters in America as Americans, terror should not smile. Terror is a devil. Don't let the terror to smile. Come, more than come, whoever you are, as the whirling devil says. No matter whatever happens, come, come. We need each other more to tide each other, more to tolerate, more to love one another, more to come close. So that terror can cry, not laughing at us. Because terror doesn't want you and I to be friends. Terror wants to see you and I separated, discriminated, and don't like one another, and make us enemy. So now, I have a question for my brothers and sisters in America. Do you want terror to be in the power? Or do you want lovers like you and I, like as we are smiling at each other, to love one another? We should come and hug you away and make them to cry, not us cry. In summary, terrorists win when we let the fear they create control how we interact with one another. How can I sit here and judge the Turks, saying that they're not doing enough for the refugees in their country? This episode is titled Retrospect, which means a survey or review of a past course of events or period of time. Speaking of past events, in November 2015, a boat crashed in front of my eyes, the screams of which I'll never be able to get out of my memory. We can say that it isn't our problem, it's so far away, it's Europe's issue to deal with, It's the Middle East issue to deal with. It's the Gulf countries' issues to deal with. But the minute that you see 200 people floundering, not able to swim, the moment that you see a baby dead, it sticks with you. You'll never forget it. At least I know I won't. You may have heard Ashley Anderson in the last episode. We worked together on the Reunite Theas, a.k.a. Concush Cat Project. Ashley and I were staying at a house on the north shore of Lesbos Island when our roommate woke us up at 5 in the morning. Some refugees had been spotted. One of them was in a wheelchair and they needed rides. My job was to stay by the rock, but mainly the reason I was staying there is to try to get a bus to come and pick people up that may have been stuck, not sure where to go. A fisherman was looking through binoculars and motioned to me to come over. I looked through the binoculars and realized that a huge boat was approaching. I had three iPhones in my hand, and I tried desperately to call someone, but none of my calls would go through. Next thing you know, the boat's crashing into the rocks, and Ashley and I, among a few other volunteers, were diving in. Our friend Doug was there, and he's a photojournalist, so he was able to capture the whole moment. I'll start first by letting you hear the screams. I think it's important because the sound is what will hopefully help you see more clearly. Perhaps it can open up the pathways of compassion to realize how traumatic this is. How no one would get on a boat with their children, or even if it was just themselves, and make this journey on their own. This was a choiceless choice.
started getting in the water, our focus was now these people coming, mm -hmm. you know, and literally passing off babies and children and women swimming with their kids. And it was... Well, they couldn't swim. They weren't swimming. I don't remember a single person swimming. Yeah, okay, that's like probably the... Yeah, I was yeah. just grabbing life vests, people that were completely limp in the water. I kept thinking, like, oh, my gosh, someone's going to fly away. Yeah. And we're not going to see yeah. them, like, floating away, you know? These are not good life vests. They're just basically worth grabbing. Yeah, yeah, you can grab people by them. I, I just that so many times grabbing someone by their life vest and then pulling them up to the rocks and then like hoisting them up the rocks where more refugees and the fishermen and then a couple more volunteers. I just remember thinking like somebody's going to float away that we're not going to see because nobody was moving their arms or their legs. It was like just, just in the water. Yeah, and I think that was partly shock and partly not knowing what to do and not knowing what, how to swim. Uh, we knew how to swim, but I'm referring to the the people coming off the boat. Yeah, you did that for a while. You, I remember going, there was a, a dip in the water where you couldn't reach, and then you can make it to a rock. I don't know if you got to that. Yeah, There's yeah. like this one rock that you can kind of like catch a breath. Mm -hmm. And I remember just like going between the... The shore and that rock, shore and that rock, because anything past that really, that really scared me because mm -hmm. I was worried that if the boat goes under or tips, then I could be sucked Pulled under. under. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So I remember, and you, I think you had the, also the same child because we were the passing baby children. baby without the life jacket. Yeah. The two week old oh baby. Oh my gosh. Yes. Yeah. The man... I remember him literally standing on the boat, passing me the baby. I don't know how it never got wet. Yeah. And uh, I remember him giving me a nod of like, don't mess up. Don't mess this up. Mm -hmm. I, I passed it to a guy behind me. I think he passed it then to you and mm -hmm. this baby got to shore. Yeah. I remember that baby looking at someone who was handing her to me thinking, what the hell? Is this real? This baby has just come off of this boat, no life jacket, being passed from hand to hand. So, like, I held her up as high as I could above my head and walked her all the way to the rocks and, like, handed her to someone, and we, like, exchanged the same type of look. Like, yeah. don't you dare drop her. I think everyone was her. doing that yeah. look. Yeah. Like, don't, don't drop my baby. I mean, yeah. this baby was, it couldn't fit in a life jacket. I mean, that's why it wasn't in a life jacket, because yeah. he was... Uh, she was, it was a girl. Yeah. And um, she was super tiny, mm -hmm. super, super tiny. Yeah. Unbelievable. I mean, somehow all those people got up. There was about 260 that we found out afterwards. I think just a sprained ankle or two. The little, littlest of the kids stayed dry. And that was incredible. It made me think so much more about this whole big picture thing. I mean, even this, that was the first time I actually met a driver of a boat. The man that drove the boat, he was from Morocco, I think. He was the only Moroccan on the ship, and he was very concerned about people knowing he was Moroccan, but he was put with that group because he had, like, a little bit of boat handling experience. But he didn't know what he was doing. And I remember he was getting pretty much shunned. All the refugees were upset at him for crashing into the rocks. And there was a minute where several of the different volunteers and NGO people were telling me, this is the sm he's a smuggler, he's a smuggler. You know, they were just like, he's a smuggler, don't help him. Nobody would give him a ride or anything. And I had gone with you to change. The boat was like crashing into, you know, yeah. 30 different pieces at that point. And it really turned in, that boat was not, no longer a boat. And it just took, what, an hour? An yeah, hour or two. Not, yeah, and it was hours. just pieces of wood. Yeah, everything just was broken down. Wood. I ran into the, this quote unquote, who they thought was a smuggler. 
and decided, you know what, I've just had it with the, the whole day already, like I could have died earlier, so let's do something even a little riskier and take this guy in my car to the camp and like vet him out because I'm like frustrated at this point. I'm like, if he really is a smuggler, I'm doing something about it, you know, like he just almost killed all these people, you know? And uh, everyone was like, don't, oh, what are you doing? What are you doing? I'm like, it's fine, you know? And so like he gets in the car, we start driving, end up finding my friend Stein on the way. So it, there was the three of us. It wasn't just me and the smuggler. But it's almost immediately when he got in the car, he started crying. Mm-hmm. And all of that, like, kind of anger, like, feeling of, like, I'm going to give this guy the third degree and stuff, you know, it just melted away. So it's like, okay, he's human. Even if he is a smuggler, he obviously has a lot of guilt here. And so we just, we just talked a little bit, and he said, you know, he never had a boat that big. He didn't know what he was doing. He didn't mean to do it. You know, he just was crying and crying. And mm-hmm. he explained that he was from Morocco and that he was allowed to go on at a lower f- cost if he agreed to drive and yeah he wasn't a smuggler yeah, <laughs> he was just trying to save yeah, money frankly. yeah yeah um so he went to the camp and that brings up the whole point of who really are the bad guys so many people you know myself included want to figure out in the situation who are the mm-hmm. bad people it's so complicated how can we say the smugglers are the bad people yeah a lot of them are treating the refugees and migrants like they're disposable like they don't mm-hmm. care yeah, about their lives right. yeah but if it wasn't for that network, how would they get out of their countries where they are even in more danger in a lot of situations? Mm-hmm. And then there's, you know, the people that are supposed to represent them and come to their aid that really are not giving them a mm-hmm. voice. And so I wanted to see what your thoughts were on. I think pointing fingers is a very mm-hmm. dangerous place to go because this is more or less why this whole thing is happening. The pointing fingers, blaming, hating, getting angry, all of that stuff doesn't doesn't solve anything. Now what it does solve is maybe trying to like siphon out areas in which we can we as a humanity can do better. These people needed to get out they need to get out of their countries. I mean whether whether it's a, a need of like security or um, economic reasons or whatever, they should be able to, in my opinion, they should be able to freely move. Mm-hmm. They should be able to freely move. And who gives them the opportunity? Are these particular people who we label as smugglers? I don't think it's <clears throat> it's going very well in terms of like their safety. I mean, a lot of people are dying and a lot of, uh, you know, risks are taken that maybe could be avoided. But this is all in a, in a reaction, I think, to urgency and panic. This is why people are leaving in the first place. That's it for this episode. Stay tuned. We still have two more episodes left for season one of Unified Threads. We have more perspectives to share, and we'll have some discernment coming up for what to share that's helpful for the bigger picture and what's fear-mongering. The next episode's going to be all about the island of Lesbos and about the situation at the Greek-Macedonia border. This episode was sponsored by Tanya at Goldenmore Cash. Visit www.goldenmorecash.com. They're always looking for quality jewelry. They'll beat any cash offer you can get from a competitor and they'll pay you on the spot. Make sure to contact them on their website to request a shipping label. Then send in your jewelry and receive cash straight to your account. I'd also like to thank our production sponsor, Tim Strange, Cheryl Colton, Rini McKenzie, Christy Counts, Don Sherry, Honey, a.k.a. the world's perfect poodle, 
and Loyal Class 9. A special shout out to Lifeguard Halals. They provided these tunes for tonight from a plastic hut along the seashore in the middle of the night during a night shift. That's where these were recorded. And then Corey Coates, our producer from Podfly Productions. Until next time, namaste. Mama, take these scars from me. Cause I can't use them anymore. It's getting dark to dark to see. Feels like I'm knocking on headless door. Guys, is you ready? Knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door. Let me think about your next song, right? Knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door. Knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door. Knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door. Mama, take this spot for me. I can't shoot them anymore. Oh, that's wrong. That cold black cloud is coming down. Feels like I'm knocking on Heller's door. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm not knocking on Heller's door. Knock, knock, knocking on Heller's door. Sing, VV, fuck's sake. Knock, knock, knocking on Evie's door. Come on, come on. <laughs> knock, knock, knocking on Evie's door. Yeah. Yeah. Go up. Come on. Which one? Alive? No, next. <laughs> With the chords, we can play anything. Next. <laughs> Dude, you and me, she goes, she speak around the country like mediocre musicians and talk.